Good morning, church. The second Bible reading will be from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 18. It's on page 1255 of your pew Bibles, or you can follow on the screen behind me. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honour and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power over death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Thank you, Ads. Now, if you keep your Bibles to Hebrews 2, we will make our way through this. Now, I'm not sure if you've noticed with our graphics, it really is a summary of what we've already seen, isn't it? The supremacy of Jesus, you see the cross, and you notice uh, the angels bowing down to the Lord, and so, so the church and Christians recognizing his lordship. It's a wonderful summary, isn't it, of this book. Uh, but let's pray once again, and, and we'll consider this passage. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for how you teach us of, of the Lordship of Christ, the one whom we must submit to. And we pray that you might make that even clearer today and drive that truth deep into us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, do you remember 1995? 1995? Some of us weren't even born some of us were probably in high school, university. But 1995, what a year was. It was the year when the DVD was introduced. Remember that? We still use DVDs, some of us. It was the year when Microsoft 95 was released. It was also the year of the Oklahoma bombing. Remember that? The Oklahoma City bombing. 168 people were killed in that bombing. It was also the year of the first Chechen war. In one of the massacres, 250 civilians were killed. 
1995, the Sri Lankan civil war was still taking place, and in one incident, a bombing by the Sri Lankan Air Force, 125 civilians were killed. 1995. Towards the end of that year, there was also a song that was released by American singer Joan Osborne. It topped the charts in Australia. I'm not sure if you remember that one, some of us who were around then. One of Us. Remember that song? One of Us. I remember hearing it on the radio. And it's an interesting song because it's a song that invites us just to imagine. The chorus goes like this. I won't sing it. It goes like this. What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. It's just getting us to imagine, isn't it? What if God was like one of us? And so let me ask you today, this morning, what if God was like one of us? What would he be like? Would you approach him? Would you be frightened to come near him? What if God was like one of us? Or, or perhaps even more important, why would God become like one of us? Why would God choose to come close to us at all? Why would God, the holy, true, perfect God, come anywhere near this world? I mean, you think about the mess of this world, 1995. What a messy year that was. Bombings and wars, and it's still raging. You look into this world and you see brokenness and mess, and, and it's just terrible people hurting each other. And then you've got natural disasters, earthquakes, hurricanes, tsunamis. I mean, is this the type of world that the perfect God would want to have anything to do with at all? Isn't this the type of world you want to get as far away as possible? Or look upon this world with just disgust. And so why would God become like one of us at all? But what do we see in the Bible? It's just like, in a sense, a fairy tale. It's a bit like a myth. I mean, it's, it's the story of like the king who sets aside his crown and comes down. It's a story of the king who takes off his robe and he puts on the filthy garbs of the commoner. He walks down the filthy streets. He sits down with the outcasts and the despised. He, he speaks to those who no one else to, would speak to. He would, he would bound out, bind up the wounds of those who are hurting. The one who would come to the lonely and says, you're not alone, I, I'm with you. I mean, it just sounds like, what if God like, was one of us? It sounds like a myth, a fairy tale. But that's what we get in the gospel, isn't it? In fact, it was C.S. Lewis, the great thinker, the brilliant author. He said, the good news of Jesus and God's reign is myth become fact. Myth become fact. Because God did become like one of us. And that's what we see in this passage. Jesus becomes like us because he is for us. Now, what we see so far in Hebrews, it's easy to be forgiven to think that Jesus is just high and mighty, far above us, beyond us, and in a sense, too distant from us, uninterested. He's superior to the prophets we saw. He's superior to the angels. Perhaps he's way up in heaven, too busy for us to, to care less. But then what we see in this chapter is the complete opposite. Jesus was made just like us. Now, why did that happen? 
Well, you see from verse 5, we get an insight into what God intended for humanity, for us, for this world, for human beings, right from the beginning of creation. You see, what God did was God promised this world. He entrusted this world not to angels, but to people, to human beings, to men and women. God planned to subject the entire universe to people. And so verse 5, it's not to angels that he subjected the world to come. And so what the author of Hebrews now, he, he quotes Psalm 8, our first reading, to make that clear. It's a psalm that speaks of the place of humanity in relation to God, in relation to angels, and in relation to the world. It goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. And so what is the place of human beings, of humanity, of men and women? Well, in a sense, this psalm says, even though you are not immortal like the angels, you're a little lower than the angels. They're, they're, in a sense, a little bit higher than you. But over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the mighty elephants, over the roaring seas, over the towering mountains, I'm going to put you in charge. Man and woman, I'm going to put you in charge. You have dominion. And so that's what we see. If you have a look, Hebrews 2, verses 7 and 8. You made him, that is speaking about humanity initially anyway. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. You see, God's intention right from the beginning was to put the universe under the rule and dominion of humanity. And on one level, that's in a sense what we still see today, don't we? You look at around the world. Who rules this world? Well, you, you, you look into Parliament. You, you don't see monkeys running around in Parliament making policies, do we? Not monkeys, they're, they're people. You, you don't see donkeys sitting on thrones. You still see human beings ruling. It, it, it's meant to be under the feet of humanity. The world was meant to be subdued and ruled and cared for and stewarded with justice and peace and righteousness under the feet of humanity. But, of course, we look around the world and it's far from that. I mean, 1995. What does that show about humanity? We've made a mess of this world. Bombings and killings and human trafficking and poverty and drugs, still a problem. But then you come closer to home, it, it's, it's just as bad. You know, it's a, what did they say? A dog-eat-dog -dog type of world. You know, climbing up to the top at the expense of others. If you've got corporate greed, you've got personal greed, you've got backstabbing. And in its wake, it leaves a trail of destruction and pain and suffering. And it's each man for himself. I mean, isn't that a fair picture of the world? And that's why we read in verse 8 here. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. The world is not the way it's meant to be. But yet... To such a messy, broken world, Jesus came into, just like us, as a man. And you see what the author of Hebrews is doing here? He's very clever. I mean, obviously, because God's the ultimate author, but he plays on the ambiguity of Psalm 8. It is firstly about humanity, but it is ultimately about the one man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God who becomes the Son of Man. And so that Joan Osborne song, What if God was one of us? Well, the truth is that he did become like one of us. And so we read in verse 9, 
now, he, he picks up on that ambiguity of Psalm 8 and he points it to Jesus. Verse 9, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. He said, what does that mean? It means for Jesus to leave the glory of heaven, to take on flesh and blood and bones. It's, it's flat out humility. And it's taking on flesh. He made himself lower than the angels. This is the king leaving his throne, casting down his crown. This is the king taking off his robe, putting on the garb of the commoner, just like everyone else. But in fact, this is far more condescending. From heaven to earth, divinity taking on flesh and blood. Now this is something, if we really understand, it's just incredibly hard to fathom. That divinity would take on our flesh and blood and bones. That God would do such a thing. I mean, this is far more, far more crazy than any fairy tale. It's in fact the doctrine of incarnation. Jesus entered into our brokenness. He took on flesh. He entered into the filth and mess of this world. And he did not stay far, but he came close. And he experienced the breath of human experiences. Whatever we experience, he experienced it. Betrayal, hatred, he experienced that. Persecution, oppression, he experienced that. Even the crucifixion. It's why when we live our lives in this world and, and we experience tough and difficult times, when we turn to God and we say, you don't understand what I'm going through, God. You, you, you have no idea my suffering, what I'm going through, my hardship. But what will God say? God will say, yes, I do understand. Have you seen my son? You see, Jesus in humility, he became just like us. I mean, you, you show me a God in this world who would do such a thing. There is not one but this. But of course, God's intention right from the beginning of the world was for humanity to be crowned with glory. It was meant to be men and women ruling this world with justice and peace and righteousness. But then we need to ask, did God stuff up when humanity failed? Well, no, because there is one man, one man, God's own son, who will take that place of glory. It's what Psalm 8 was looking forward to. It speaks about humanity in general, but it's focusing on the one man. And so we look at verse 9 again. But we see Jesus now crowned with glory and honor. Because, it's an important word, because, not despite, but because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You see, even the death of Jesus in all its shame and ignominy, was to be seen as his crowning glory. He became just like us, so much so, so human, that God could even die. You come close enough, you could stab him, and that's what we did. But his death was his coronation. His cross was his throne, because through it he was exalted back to the right hand of the Father. And eventually... What this world will see, we may not see it yet, but what this world will see is that everything will be placed under the feet of Jesus and he'll have dominion over all. The one who will rule the universe in the end, for all eternity, is in fact a man. It shows that it was God's plan all along. Jesus became just like us in our humanity. 
But of course we need to ask now, why? Why did Jesus become like us? Well, the answer is because he is for us. He is so for us as our brother and our saviour. He's the older brother, the true son who welcomes us into the family. I mean, you just think about that, that picture. It's the stuff of fairy tales, isn't it? You know, Prince Charming finding Cinderella, getting married and making her royalty. It's the prince kissing Snow White and she marries into his kingdom. I mean, we love fairy tales, don't we? Because it, it tugs at our heart. It, it's, it's what we wish to be true. That that would be true, to find true love, to, to be welcome, to become royalty. I mean, every girl wants to be, you know, a princess. And every guy here, we think we're Prince Charming. And it, we, we want this to be true. But here we have a brother in Jesus who makes it true. He's the prince who, with a kiss, brings us back to life. He's the prince who brings us home. And so verse 10, in bringing many sons to glory, you see that picture, it was intended by God that humanity would be crowned with glory. We can't do our own alone, but Jesus makes it possible. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus is called the author of salvation here, or the pioneer of salvation. The word has the sense of him being the founder or the leader. He opens up the way for salvation to be possible. You see, there's no salvation outside of Jesus. You cannot find a home in heaven apart from Jesus, outside of Jesus. Go to any religion in this world, you, you will not find it. In fact, go to religion itself, go to rules, you will not find it. You have to go to a person, to Jesus. And there is no salvation without his suffering. In fact, that's why we hear it described here. He was made perfect in suffering, through suffering. Not because Jesus was imperfect at all, not at all. But in suffering, he was able to achieve what could not be achieved without suffering. And notice now the relationship we have with Jesus. He's our brother. And look at how he considers us in verse 11. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. I mean, he's the brother who's not ashamed of us. He's the brother who's, in fact, proud of us. Can you imagine that? The Son of God, the King of the universe, saying, I'm proud of you, I'm not ashamed of you. I mean, how many of us could say that for every member of our family? You know, there's no one in my whole extended family that I'm not embarrassed by. I'm sure we all have someone, you know. You can't take that cousin out. I mean, he's going to make a fool of himself. He'll embarrass you. Or, or I, I, don't, I hope we're not inviting Uncle Bob to Christmas dinner. He, he's so weird. He's cringy. He tries to be funny, but he's not. Now, just to be clear, I don't have an uncle like that. But, but even within our family, there may be those we're, we're ashamed of. In fact, only a couple of years ago, someone actually said to me, because of the mess that was going on in the household, she said to me, I had nothing to do with that mess. There's a bit of shame of the family. But Jesus says here, here are my brothers, here are my sisters, and I'm not ashamed of any one of them. I'm in fact proud of them. I'm pleased to be by their side. 
me, can you imagine that? Us, sinners. Sinners saved by grace, of course. Sinners who are made holy, verse 11. Before Jesus said, I'm proud of you. I'm unashamed to be with you. And so we read verse 13 now. Here I am and the children God has given me. Here I am. This is my family. And if this is true, I mean, it's better than any fairy tale. If this is true, doesn't it just liberate us? It frees us. It frees us, doesn't it, from the opinions and the, and the perceptions and the thoughts of others and what they think about us. It frees us from, from living for that, from the approval of others. It liberates us. One of the challenges of being in ministry is that, is that my life and the life of my family is constantly on public display. It opens us up to opinions and perceptions where under scrutiny, and I'm not saying that this happens here, you're a wonderful church family, but it's just part of the past of being in public ministry. But if I were to live for every opinion you had of me, for every perception you have of me, for every thought, the hundreds of people in our church, it will be absolutely paralyzing. It will turn me into a people pleaser rather than a God-fearer, and people pleasers please no one. But if the opinion that matters most in my life is what we see here, if this is true and Jesus says, you are my brother, I'm not ashamed of you, isn't that where I find my security and worth? And so it changes how I live. It frees me. It liberates me. Who cares what you think about me? Say what you want. I don't care. Actually, I do care a little bit, but, but you know what I mean. You see, Jesus became like us because he is for us. The true brother who welcomes us. I mean, when I understood the majesty, the magnificence of, of what this truth is, it's the doctrine of adoption. It blew my mind. Do you know what it means for, for Jesus to welcome us into the family of God? It means that the way God treats Jesus is the way he treats us. The way God loves Jesus is the way he loves us. It's that, it's that wonderful, glorious truth. It's the, the cream of the crop of the gospel. It was one of the truth that, that convicted me. You, you have to live for your father. You have to follow your brother. It's why J.I. Packer, he said, you understand this, it's just like a fairy tale. It comes from his book, Knowing God. If Many of us are not readers, but if you are to read one book apart from the Bible, I reckon this book recommend this book, Knowing God by Jaya Packer. And in it he said, we are all loved just as fully as Jesus is loved. It is like a fairy story. The reigning monarch adopts waifs and strays to make princes of them. But praise God, it is not a fairy story. It is hard and solid fact, founded on the bedrock of free and sovereign grace. See how glorious that is? Jesus, our brother, he welcomes us. I'm not ashamed of you. I'm willing to take you out. You won't embarrass me. How glorious is that? But he's also our saviour who died for us. He died a death that's not meaningless. It wasn't an unfortunate situation where he was just at the wrong time and the wrong place. No. It's why he became like us so that he could die for us. And it was a death that, that, that changes the world, turns the world upside down. 
It was a death that reverses time. It was a death that blasts a hole through death. And Jesus saying, death does not get the last word. It does not get the last say. It is defeated. And that's what we see, verse 14. Have a look. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. You see, the enemy is vanquished. It's like the knight who slays the dragon. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. You see, if death remains undefeated, then death is the great victor. Death wins and will live in fear of death. You speak to different people, and most people are troubled by death. Though not everyone will admit to that. But most people are troubled by death. There is a fear of death. If death is the end, it destroys what purpose and meaning we have in life. So what? Who cares? Who cares if I try to be good and decent and moral if death is the end and there is no God to face? Who cares if I try to amass so much wealth and my death takes it all? It's why have you noticed how fairy tales end? How do fairy tales often end? It ends with a happily ever after. That's how the story finishes. Most of them. When Prince Charming and Cinderella, they get married, it's happily ever after. When, when the prince and Snow White, when they get married, it's, it's a happily ever after. We want it to end that way, but it's not the end. It, it's not the end. What's the end? Well, the end is that eventually they'll grow old and they'll die of cancer or some heart disease. Snow White perhaps gets Alzheimer's. Though we don't like to think about that and we don't tell children that. But why is it that fairy tales end with a happily ever after. It's because it, it's what we yearn for. It's what we long for. It's why we read those stories, why we love it. We want happily ever afters. But there is no happily ever after unless death is defeated, unless the enemy is vanquished, unless the dragon is slain, unless sin is dealt with. And that's exactly what Jesus has come to do. He's come to destroy the devil and the power of the devil. He's come to make atonement for our sins, to be our great high priest, which we'll come to learn and explore of in the following weeks. And he's come to blast a hole through death, such that now with death there's a leakage. There's a leakage of those whom Jesus calls my brothers and sisters. And you see how liberating that is. We escape not just death, but the fear of death. See, Joan Osborne, in her, in her chorus, in her song, she sings, well, what if God is one of us? Well, we know God did become like one of us in Jesus. But he's not a slob like us. He's our saviour. He's not a stranger on the bus. He's our brother. He's not trying to make his way home as though he's lost somewhere. But he knows his home and he's bringing us there. Now, don't you believe that? I mean, do you believe that? It's more than a fairy tale. It's true. It's more glorious than any fairy tale. Don't you want to believe that? Don't you want that to be true? Because if we are really after a happily ever after, it's the only way. It's the only way. 
And perhaps at this point, it's, it's important for us who meet here every week, and, and particularly if you're here for the first time and you're visiting, we cannot assume when we come together. It's very easy to assume everyone who comes to church, we're all Christians. We all belong. We all will have that happily ever after, we, but we cannot assume that. In fact, I make no assumptions every week. Instead, we need to be so mindful because what is at stake here is greater for us than it is for angels because they have no saviour, but we do. And unless Jesus is your saviour, unless you turn to him and he calls you brother and sister, eventually you'll be swallowed up by death and will hold you in and you'll live this life in fear of death. But yet for those of us who can say, Jesus is my saviour, He's my brother who calls me brother. He's the one who became like me to die for me. And if I believe that, my funeral will be different. My funeral will be so different. You go to a Christian funeral and you go to a non-Christian funeral, it's worlds apart. Because you go to a Christian funeral, even in the face of death, you see there is a leakage in death because of the resurrection. Jesus became like us because he is for us. You see, this is far more than any fairy tale, any make-believe. All that we want true from fairy tales, in fact, comes true in the gospel. We want a story where evil will not triumph. We don't want a story where the witch will win over Snow White. We want a story where love will never stop, where love will never end. I mean, we don't want a story where the beast will never find true love. We want a story where death will not win. We don't want a story where Sleeping Beauty remains sleeping for life, forever. It's what we yearn for. It's what we long for. It's what tugs at our heart. We want it. We want it to be true. And it all comes true in the gospel. Because it's as though the storyteller himself, the great author, He's entered into his own story. He's written himself in his own story. And he takes on flesh and blood of the very people he made. And if that is what Jesus has done, if we know this and what Jesus has done, it just should, it should blow our minds. It should so fill our hearts. I mean, what did Jesus do? I did not stay away from you, from your mess, from your filth, from your brokenness. I did not stay away. I have come near, I have come close. And I've come close and I've experienced all of the worst of humanity. What you've experienced, I have more. Hardship, isolation, betrayal, malice, injustice, agony. I've experienced that. Death, crucifixion. I was even God forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My body broken. My blood shed, my soul torn, so that you could experience a love that's infinite. Yeah, you don't deserve it, but you could experience a love that's infinite, so that you could have really, truly, a happily ever after. I mean, how do you capture, capture the wonder, the glory of what Jesus has done? God become man for us. How do you capture that? This year, I, I got our staff team to read 
a book by John Owen called Commune with God. He was a theologian at Oxford in the 17th century. And partly because I wanted us all to be captured by the glory of what Jesus has done so that our own hearts will be moved and captured by that. John Owen, he puts it this way. He said, There will be no end should I go through all the instances of Christ's valuation of believers. In all their deliverances, afflictions, in all conditions of sinning and suffering, what he has done, what he does in his intercession, what he delivers them from, what he procures for them, all telling out this one thing. They are the apple of his eye, his jewel, his diadem, his crown. I mean, isn't that glorious? All that Jesus did is for us, is for you. From all eternity past, the apple of his eye is you. And then John Owen, he goes on to say, He parted with the greatest glory. He underwent the greatest misery. He does the greatest works that ever were because he loves his spouse, because he values believers. What can more, what can further be spoken? What more can the Son of God do for you? And so let me ask you, how do you think that should affect us? Does it have any effect on us when we come to grips with Jesus becoming like us and for us? You see, one of the responses out of this is, now I need to get ready and do stuff. I need to start thinking about serving. I'm feeling a bit guilty. I'm not doing enough, not praying enough. It should have those effects for sure. But primarily what I want as our response out of this is for our heart's affections to be affected. For our heart's affections. Several months ago, I got our staff and elders to consider, how much do you love the Lord? How would you describe your affections for the Lord? Are we known for just our busyness in service, our efforts in the church, in ministry? Or are we known for our affections for the Lord? What is the flavor of our lives? You see, we want to be seen as the people who are all sold out because this more than a fairy tale is true. And it should challenge all aspects of our lives. If Jesus is someone who has done this for me, should I keep Jesus as like a spare tire in my life? I'll just go to Jesus when I need him. Or is he my captain who drives my life? If Jesus is who he says he is, his commands to love, to carry the cross, to forgive, to give, to be faithful, to kill sin, are they just words that just fall on deaf ears, just like you know what the politicians say? We, We hear it, but... Or do I heed it because he's my brother, the true brother, who will only tell me what is good for me? And are the desires of Jesus my desires? Do I respond? I'm one of yours. Send me. Wherever you go, I go too. And so today, my, my encouragement for us is not after this we get busy and do stuff and feel busy but for our heart's affections to be affected. Do I love him and do I love him more? I should. You see, we love Jesus because he became like us, because he is for us, our saviour, 
our brother, the one who secured for us a happily ever after. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, how can we ever fathom the glory of the incarnation and the majesty of adoption that Jesus would be like us, broken and even killed, so that we might have life and a happily ever after with our brother in glory forever. Help us to believe that more and more and help us to respond in a heart's affection that loves the Lord so much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.